welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fast Talk. I'm Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined by my rather old co-host, Coach Trevor Connor. Today we're talking about something that's a factor to many of us right now, but will ultimately be a factor to all of us sooner than we'd like. The effects of aging. We've all said or heard it before, I'm not what I was in my 20s. I can't keep up with them, they're too young. Popular media would have us believe that after the age of 35, we'll plunge off a precipitous cliff of decline from which there's no escape. Run out, buy your joint medication, back brace, get it all now. We're not. Is it really as grim as it's made out to be? Today, we'll first address what the research says and why even past research painted a much grimmer picture than reality. In simple terms, it's hard to conduct a study tracking athletes over the course of 50 years, and there are many inherent issues with comparing current older athletes to current young athletes. We'll explore. Second, we'll delineate what age effects truly exist like a drop in maximum heart rate, and the others that have been traditionally attributed to aging that now appear to be trainable, such as a loss in fast-twitch muscle fiber strength. Finally, we'll look at the changes that have taken place in one legend of cycling, and how he's been able to remain strong through the years with his emphasis on recovery and his methods for staying healthy. That main guest is a true legend. Ned Overend needs really no introduction. But, a little background. First world mountain bike champion, but more relevant to this podcast, he was still winning pro races, including the Mount Washington Hill Climb, in his 50s. Now in his 60s, Ned still rips with the local pros in Durango almost every week. Fortunately, we have some fascinating data to analyze, including a lactate test Ned performed when he was 53. We'll post that on the Velo News website. We'll also talk about how he trains, how he stays young, and what has changed over the years despite his best efforts. He has some great advice, not just for older athletes, but for anyone trying to stay strong on the bike. In addition, we'll hear from Dr. Jason Glowney, head of medicine at the CU Sports Medicine and Performance Center, who has a lot of real-world experience keeping older athletes on top form. We'll also hear from Fast Talk regular Frank Overton, owner of Fast Cat Coaching, who has worked with a lot of Masters athletes over the years and races as a master himself. Finally, we'll hear from Glenn Swan, a three-time Masters National Champion and one-time World Champion, about how he was able to still scare the pros on the East Coast into his 50s. So don't despair. Age is just a number, right? With that, let's make you fast. Hey, Trevor, how many uh, wearable gadgets do you have that tell you how healthy you are? I have a whole bunch of wearable athletes. None of them. Oh, sorry. <laughs> wearable athletes? That's weird. Do, you, do they accompany you on all your rides? Yes, yes, they do. <laughs> they won't leave me alone. <laughs> I have a whole bunch of wearable gadgets, but I've yet to find one that actually tells me I'm healthy. Mm, this is a good point. Well, that's all right, because uh, healthiq.com, which is a health insurance company built for healthy, active people like you, like me, like Fast Talk listeners out there that might be runners, cyclists, triathletes. They're able to give us favorable rates, and they have a special URL, www.healthiq.com slash fasttalk, where listeners of the show can go 
for their free quote. While you're there, upload all that data from all your gadgets, show race results, screen grabs of your Strava or MapMyRun account, or other proof that you're indeed a regular cyclist or runner or triathlete, and get a better quote. So if my wearable gadget only says, you need help, will I get a better quote? Absolutely. It's an honor, honestly, to to have Ned on the program. He's a humble legend, has done so many amazing things in the sport. You look at uh, his results over the years. He's He won, did you win Mount Evans and Mount Washington while you were in your 50s? I, I believe that's correct. Uh, yeah, I don't know about Mount Evans in my 50s, but uh, Mount Washington, I was in my 50s. Yeah, it, it's, it, it boggles the mind. It kind of begs the question, is Ned Overend an outlier? But we want to dive into you a little bit more, get some specifics, and, and, and uh, understand what has changed for you in terms of performance over the years. Yeah, and, you know, I get asked a lot the question, you know, because I've had some, some good results as a, as a master's athlete. People are always asking me, what is the secret? <laughs> and of course, you know, as, as we know, there is no secret, but I do have a unique set of circumstances, which has helped me not decline as much as I get older, it has helped me maintain a, a large percentage of my VO2 max. It, it's kind of a, a complex variety of things, but one of them is that as I transitioned from being a professional athlete, and I retired from being a pro mountain bike racer for Specialized in 96, I got a job with Specialized, and I was able to keep training and racing and being supported by them. And that rarely happens to uh, athletes when they retire from their pro career. They usually have to go into something else which detracts from their ability to train and race as much as they'd like to. You, you see in older athletes, there is often a big drop in training volume and intensity because they get jobs, they have kids, they just can't train as much as they could when they were younger. And, and some of what the, the researchers are saying now is it might not be age, it might be life. And it sounds like you're saying you had opportunities in life that some of us don't get. Yeah, yeah, I, I think for sure. And along with that, there's other things. Another reason I think that I've been able to maintain a high percentage of my VO2 max is that my preferred style of training is more high-intensity, low-volume or lower-volume. From what I've read, that higher-intensity training is what helps you maintain your VO2 max over time. So that's been my preferred method of training. And the more that I've learned about how that's effective in uh, slowing the the decline with age, the more I've kind of focused on it. When you say lower volume, could you give us a a sort of a ballpark figure on what that means? It, well, I, I, um, for instance, right now, I train an average of about 10 to 12 hours a week. So that's, that's pretty low volume with, with some good intensity in there. And, uh, that's a mixture. And I do hours because if you do it in miles, it, mountain bike training doesn't really relate to miles. Right. So, uh, but hour hour wise, and that's that's less volume than I I was doing when I was forty five. But uh, 
still, I think that's that's overall people would be surprised that you know you can race at the elite level on on that low of a volume. So, Ned, let's get back to the specifics here. What's different about you now from from the time when you were at the highest levels of the sport when you were twenty thirty years old? Well, it's been a long time, right? It's been like thirty years of racing, uh, you know, mountain road, cyclocross, triathlon. You kind of have to go back and compare my different training diaries to really figure it out because you only you get old slowly, right? Just like one day at a time, so it it changes very slowly. Mm-hmm. But but I've been going back over some of my uh, training diaries and and just over Strava. I've been on Strava since 2012, looking at the the volume change and the uh, not necessarily the intensity but the, the frequency of training. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's definitely, just in the last five years, there's been about a 15% decrease in, uh, in hours trained in, in overall volume. One of the things I've noticed the most is that there's more bad days. And I think what that relates to is recovery. Uh, if I can go out on some, some days training now when I will feel so slow that I'm, I'm shocked at how weak I feel. Right. It's like, and, and that's related to recovery because I'm still doing some high intensity workouts. So what I notice is that if I don't get the proper recovery, recovery, I really have some, some poor, some days where I'm, where my performance is really poor. What about in terms of your performance Looking at your physiological test that we're going to get to in in a moment, it seems like you have the profile of someone who can go now at your age, or or the the, the test was done about ten years ago, for a really long time at a pretty hard rate. But you've lost that top end, that that ability to cover attacks or or things like that. Is that something that you've noticed compared to um, twenty years previously? Well, I actually feel pretty good about, and I gauge myself a lot against others in group rides, you know, fast group ride situations. We have a, a Tuesday night ride here in Durango uh, with a lot of fast kids from Fort Lewis College and a lot of the local mountain bike pros and some road pros. And I actually do pretty well as far as accelerations and closing gaps and things like that. I, I feel like I do well there because you know, I'm, I'm able to close those gaps and, and join the break when a lot of guys, you know, fail to, fail to close the, mm. the gaps behind me. But one thing that, uh, I was weak at was my finishing speed. And that has definitely appeared to have gotten even worse. Mm. That's why if, if I finish a race with a group of six guys, it's it's a pretty rare circumstance where I'm not the last guy in the sprint, <laughs> right. and it wasn't it wasn't quite that bad when I was 40 or 35. Mm-hmm. Somebody else in my world. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. I want to win a race, there has to be no other cyclist in sight. So. Yeah, that's frustrating because there's not that many courses which lend themselves to those kind of finishes. Mountain bike is good for it. So, Trevor, I know as always, you've done a lot of looking into the the latest research on trends that have been seen in an older athletes. Why don't you give us a sense of what those hallmark trends have been in the in the research? Yeah, I actually read a ton of research for this because right now I'm staying at Chris's place, and you're watching some silly British show on TV. So, 
I had to find an excuse to get away. <laughs> the research has been fascinating. I actually really enjoyed reading this, partially because of I'm, I'm 46, so this is becoming more and more relevant to me. But if there's one theme that I hope we're getting across that, that we're also really seeing in Ned is this idea that, yes, there is an age effect. Certainly by the time you're in your 70s, you, you, it's just probably not possible to be as strong as you could have been in your 20s or were in your 20s. But a lot of what they're attributing to age effect is more changes in the way you're training. And this inevitability is not as dramatic as we thought. But looking at it from a high level, there's definitely a, you, you can find the curve that shows this, the expected decline that you're going to see where it start, you start to experience it in your, your mid to late 30s. It's kind of gradual until you get to about 60, 70, and then you see a very rapid decline. The really important thing to know about this is this is all from cross-sectional research. Meaning there isn't somebody who started a study 50 years ago, taking a bunch of 20-year-olds and uh, watched what happened to them as they, they got to the age of 70. It's more what they're doing is comparing current 20-year-olds to current 70-year-olds. When you do that, there are other factors. Did those 70-year-olds maintain um, their training through their whole life? Certainly, 50, 60 years ago, we didn't have the sports culture we have now. So in some ways, you can't compare them to the current 20-year-olds. And what the research is starting to say is that cross-sectional way of analyzing it is misrepresenting what happens with age. But one of the, the proofs that they're using for this is in the last 20 years, you're seeing more and more people get involved in sports at a master's level. And what you are seeing is relative to younger, what you'd call elite athletes, the performance of these master's athletes is improving dramatically. You're also seeing the, the average age of people who are, are winning championships going up. I think we just had our first 43-year-old win the Ironman a couple of years ago. So you're really seeing that, no, the, this belief that once you hit 35, it's all downhill, uh, it's not quite that crystal clear. And Ed, I'll certainly say I... Um, Back in 2009, I did a race down in your neck of the woods. Um, I'm trying to remember, it was that three-day stage race you have down in Durango? The Iron Horse Classic. Thank you. Yeah, Iron Horse. I was still racing a full NRC calendar then. I thought I was pretty hot stuff. Uh, you were at the race, and I will say, you kicked my butt. <laughs> He's done that to a lot of people over the, over the years. <laughs> and I was in my 30s. You were in your 50s. So uh, that was a real eye-opener to me of... Uh, uh, what we thought about age might not be fully true. But here are, I'll quickly summarize the changes that they're seeing and talk a little bit about what is truly biological and what might not be. The biggest one that keeps coming up in the research is a decline in your VO2 max. And that is primarily because of this drop in, in your heart rate. Um, your max heart rate comes down with age. And that that's pretty typical, right? Where mm -hmm. uh, older athletes cannot generate the same heart rate numbers as they get older. I mean, they have general uh, theories for that for sedentary people, but I'm not sure how that relates to uh, trained athletes. In the research, yes. That's when they were looking at what are age, um, age effects. One of the ones that, that keeps coming up that they say, this is a true age effect, is a drop in your max heart rate. But there, there's still a debate of how much it drops. So I found two studies uh, looking into this debate last night. 
One that said, no, training status, no effect on, on the decline in, in max heart rate. It's just going to keep coming down. Another one said that actually highly trained athletes, it's going to slow that decline. Um, I've certainly known that I think my max heart rate in the last 15 years has dropped four beats. It really hasn't dropped very much. But generally what you see is it's, a, it's about 0.7 beats per minute per year. And when your, your heart rate drops or max heart rate drops, you can't pump blood as quickly or as much. So your VO2 max is going to, to come down. And that seems to be a, a true age effect. However, one of the other things that causes a drop in VO2 max is a drop in muscle mass. And that is something that you can train, that you can do something about. So that's the first one. The other big, big change that you see, and Ned, you were describing some of this, is a change in your muscle fibers. So you see a decline in those type 2 fast-twitch muscle fibers. Uh, so you start losing them. They start losing their, their cross-sectional area. And you basically have this transition towards uh, type 1 muscle fibers. And what's really interesting is in masters endurance athletes, not only do you not see a loss in type 1 muscle fibers, those are the ones that are you know, what you call your endurance fibers, your purely oxidative, they actually increase in cross-sectional area. Along with that, you actually see enhancements in oxidative enzymes. Things like citrate synthase uh, will, will, will increase in older athletes. So essentially what you're seeing is older athletes become almost these aerobic animals. Uh, just They're pure aerobic monsters. And that's certainly, Ned, a bit of what we are seeing in, in your profile. The question there is whether that is age-related or training-related, because in these studies, they were looking at older athletes who have had 20-plus years of uh, endurance training, and a lot of them aren't getting in a weight room. They're just doing endurance training. So if you spent 20 years just riding a bike, you would expect to see a loss in fast-twitch muscle fibers and an improvement in your slow-twitch muscle fibers. So they've done some recent interesting studies. I actually hunted a while to see if they had these studies. I only found two. But when they took masters athletes, um, off, took them off the bike who were just doing endurance work and put them in a weight room, well, you, you saw these fast-twitch muscle fibers. The strength would come back a bit. Um, the size would come back. So again, that might not be inevitability of age. That might be a training effect. The other major effect you see is when you look at lactate threshold. It does decline a bit, not as much as VO2 max. But interestingly, lactate threshold becomes a higher, higher percent of VO2 max. So I think it was actually in a longitudinal study where I saw this, where uh, they followed athletes, I think it was 25 years. And their lactate threshold, like I said, it didn't decline that much, but it went from like 85% of their VO2 max to upwards 92, 93% of their VO2 max. So the idea here is, again, if you're doing a time trial, you're not going to see that much of a decrement in performance. Where you would struggle is when you try to go over threshold, you just don't have that big jump, that big burst, that big ability to, to throw out those one-minute attacks that you might have had when you were younger. Because you're actually, when you're at threshold, much closer to your max ability. And that, that's, again, exactly what you were describing earlier. So very interesting that that's, that's what you saw. Now, are, are you saying it would be more advantageous for master's athletes to do even shorter intervals, higher yeah. intensity, in order to uh, keep those 
uh, fast twitch mus- muscle fibers from uh, from losing those fast twitch muscle fibers? Usually, sorry, I tell you the studies that I'm, I'm looking at. So I'm looking at one right now. It's a 2017 study, so very recent, in the journal Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise. And the title of it is The Effects of Age on the VO2 Max Response to High-Intensity Interval Training. And they basically say when they take masters athletes and have them do very high-intensity work, so sprint work, shorter intervals, uh, at very high intensities, that you could attenuate a lot of that drop in VO2 max. Likewise, and I'll put all these references up on the website, as, as we always do, there was another one that, that showed that you could uh, attenuate or even prevent some of this drop in, in your fast-twitch muscle fiber uh, strength and size by getting in the weight room. And, and they showed that even into your 70s, if you get into the weight room and do some heavy weight lifting, that you're, you can not only prevent that loss, but actually bring back some of that size and strength of those faster twitch muscle fibers. So really the, the recommendation that I got out of the research is you can prevent a lot of these age effects by a, maintaining to a degree um, volume of training, but more importantly, getting, making sure you're getting that high intensity training and making sure that you are getting into the weight room and doing more strength work as you get older. And Ned, it seems like that's exactly what you've been describing. Yeah, I, I have a, another question now. Say that the real world style of training I do, where you know I don't go out and, and do focused intervals like that. But this time of year, I'm doing cyclocross training. We have like a, a midweek cyclocross training race, and then we'll race right cyclocross on the weekends. And that kind of power surging out of every corner that you get with cyclocross and starting the race with a sprint. Would that be that style of training, which could help uh, masters athletes who, who generally just uh, train their endurance muscles? So I think this gets into the, there's a lot of different ways to, to skin the cat. It doesn't have to be structured intervals. If you're doing training races, uh, you can get the same sort of benefits and, you might actually know um, a good friend of mine, Glenn Swan, who you, you, I think you two are the exact same age, and he was a three-time national champion in the time trial. And he always likes to say he, he never once did an interval workout because he can't stand intervals. But he would make sure he was doing training races and killing himself in those training races every week. And essentially, it was just doing intervals with other people around him. Yeah, and it's easier to do those intervals because you're not thinking so much just about your heart rate or your power. You're thinking about getting on that wheel or trying to drop a guy, and it makes it more dynamic and and exciting. Think as long as you are getting those efforts, and, and you were describing that you're going to those Tuesday night local races. I think you had mentioned that you do some strength training off the the bike, so you're really doing what seems to be the things that are going to prevent a lot of these age effects. That's what the research says about aging, but Chris and I decided to talk with Dr. Jason Glowney, head of medicine at the University of Colorado Sports Medicine and Performance Center. Dr. Glowney has a lot of experience helping master's athletes perform at their best, so Chris and I were very interested in seeing how he addresses the effects of aging. It seems to be in line with what both the research and Ned have to say. Sure. Uh, with aging, obviously, there's a, there's a couple factors. One is the accumulation of injuries that happen as, as we age. Um, we're all active. We're all out there. We see arthritis in the knees and the effects that it can have on your ability to, to ride the bike, to push out to hard watts. 
assuming everything is okay there and there's not any uh, chronic issues, uh, you know, from a musculoskeletal standpoint that are holding you back. You know, one of the worries with aging that we have is the loss of uh, fast twitch muscle and muscle bulk. So uh, usually uh, my recommendations will be to uh, serious uh, age group athletes, masters athletes, yeah, to incorporate strength training in their workouts, uh, probably with uh, from the years of 40 plus and on. I think that's definitely beneficial. Um, doing some, uh, some checks like blood work uh, where we'll typically check uh, ferritin, which is uh, one of the better ways to look at iron, vitamin D, and things of that nature that can uh, make sure that uh, you uh, can keep good, uh, good muscle health, uh, where iron is important in myoglobin, which is in muscles, and you need that to extract oxygen from the bloodstream. Vitamin D is important for fast-switch muscle health as well, uh, so those uh, definitely play a big role. But probably one of the more comp- uh, important things is consistency. And so a lot of these athletes that you see who are 60-plus who are still doing really well, if they're cyclists, they've been consistent, and uh, that's probably the secret to uh, staying fit for a long period of time. And uh, hopefully if you're lucky, you don't run into um, an incident where you have a prolonged time away from the bike or from your sport. Uh, that's definitely something that's harder to, to dig out of. In particular, the things we see are surgeries that seem to set patients back um, uh, here in the clinic. Hey, Trevor, after you do a six-hour ride with 15,000 feet of climbing in Colorado, what do you like to eat? (laughs) So I would just do it at training camp with, uh, with one of my athletes, and there's this amazing ice cream store in boulder that has these incredible ice cream sandwiches so we had a rule we had to do six hours each day if we finished six hours we could have our ice cream sandwich and the last day he was absolutely dying and we were at five and a half and i said do you want to go home or do you want to finish the six hours with me and just looks at me and goes if i go home you're going to buy an ice cream sandwich and eat it in front of me (laughs) you know it's all about balance you got to ride to get your treats to be healthy. Fortunately, our sponsor, Health IQ, only looks at how active you are and what sort of riding you're doing and not necessarily what you're eating afterwards. This is a life insurance company that specializes in healthy, active people. So they are able to give us favorable rates for life insurance and they even have a special URL for Fast Talk, which is www.healthiq.com fasttalk, where listeners of the show can go for the free quote. While you're there, you can submit race results, screen grabs of your Strava or Map My Ride account, or other proof that you are indeed a regular cyclist and get a better quote. I highly recommend you don't mention ice cream sandwiches. Ned was, was kind enough to share a lactate test that he did back in 2008. So it says here you were 53. Thank you for letting us post this. We'll put this on the website. We have, and it's an absolutely fascinating test. For one thing, it shows just how talented a cyclist you are. We sat down beforehand and and tried to interpret this, and we were kind of interested in if you've experienced what what we're predicting from from looking at this, or, or if we're way off base. But one of the obvious things that we saw is you have lower heart rates. So I mean, you hit threshold at 137 beats per minute and your max heart rate's 159 where if you take somebody in their 20s you're you're generally going to see a max heart rate closer to to 200 and you're probably going to see their threshold closer to 170 180 that being said i I have worked with pros in their 20s who, who likewise have low heart rates and so one of the first questions we had is is 
have you noticed a drop in your heart rate over the years, or is that just always the way you've been? No, I've, I've definitely, well, not knowing the specific number, but in general, yeah, I cannot get my heart rate up as high as, as I could 10 years ago. So it was interested if you've seen a, a dramatic drop or if it's, it's been a, a slower drop. To be honest with you, I'm, I'm really just guessing here because I don't train with a heart rate monitor. I, I have a very unstructured, well, maybe not unstructured is the right word, but it's a low-tech hmm. training method, methodology. <laughs> I am pretty much a perceived effort trainer. So when I go out and uh, do intervals, I'm doing based on my perceived effort over the length of the interval I'm doing. And, uh, and I use group rides and chasing Strava segments, hmm. you know, for either a PR or a, a KOM or a, or a high finish on the Strava segment as, as my, uh, kind of drive for interval training. And I don't use a, a watt meter or a heart rate monitor. And never have. No, never have. I've, I've played around with heart rate monitors. 20 or 30 years ago, back when polar heart rate monitors were around, but I was never really, could never really be focused enough to actually do heart rate training. Didn't like that much structure in my training, so I, I didn't really embrace using it. You've, you've used it very effectively, I would say. You say low tech, but your brain is, is high tech in this sense, and it's, it's definitely in tune with what your body's doing and has worked for you for uh, your entire career, it sounds like. Yeah, and and I've been doing athletics for a long time, right? I mean, I I started in high school as a as a pretty well accomplished cross country runner and track runner, and so I've had a lot of time to kind of get in tune with my body. Even back in in high school, we had a a great coach who was very much about making training fun. So where where other coaches would have guys be doing repeat quarter miles on the track. He would have us out on fire roads, it's called Indian file, you know, where the, you, you might have seven guys running and the guy from the back accelerates and goes to the front and, and making it more fun and playful, yet still really hard. And that's, that's the kind of training I prefer. So the other couple interesting things about your, uh, your profile here, one is certainly your VO2 max, which is uh, 71.1 milliliters per kilogram per minute. You look at your Tour de France champions, your, your top cyclists, uh, they're going to be up in the, the mid to even high 80s. 71 mm. is very impressive, certainly uh, something that, that, that you would see uh, in pros, and particularly impressive when, again, what they're saying, or, or one of the, the first things they point to as, as an age thing is a drop in your VO2 max. It would have been interesting to see what your VO2 max was in your 20s if it was just that insanely high. But we're certainly seeing, even in your mid-50s, a VO2 max that a lot of pros would be very happy to have. But another really interesting thing to me is your lactates stayed very, very low, right around one milliliter per liter, up until very high wattages. And the, the ranges here that, uh, that Neil created for you are, are almost a little bit comical uh, in that you get up to 260 watts where you're still pretty much just endurance. So what people would think of as zone two, something you can, you can sustain for a long time. At your weight, that's 
about what's expected of, of almost a pro tour uh, level rider. Then he has your tempo range, which is what a lot of people call zone three or sweet spot. And here's the funny part. It, he set it at 265 watts to 275 watts. I'm not sure I've ever seen a range that, that's only 10 watts. And then you're right into your, your threshold range. So again, very interested. This is your experience racing, but this profile is, is one of somebody who can go forever at a very high pace. So if you went out and did a four, three, four hour race with somebody, you, you could probably just ride them into the ground, keeping, keeping a very, very high pace. But that sustainable, I could do this all day pace very quickly goes into now I'm at threshold. Now I'm at what I would time trial at. There doesn't seem to be a, a much uh, room in between. Has that been your experience or am I reading this wrong? Well, again, relating it to finishing at the end of a race, that's my experience, right? I mean, I, I can get in a break and, and indeed get in many breaks. And, uh, and I, I think, yeah, it's either when guys start attacking at the end of the race, then, then I'm not capable of falling. I can, I can make it down to a small group, but then when the guys start attacking at the end, I can get dropped. Or if I make it to the end, when, like I say, in the sprint, I'm, I'm not competitive. Right. And that's what this is showing. Uh, my guess is if you get into that breakaway and they, some of them say, okay, let's take this up to uh, 27, 28 miles an hour and just hold at this really high, steady pace, uh, see if we can pop Ned, uh, they're probably going to be really surprised and find that you're going to be the one popping them. That would, that would be my guess from what I'm seeing here. Yeah, and, and I guess uh, what you're talking about would lend itself to, to being good for, for mountain bike racing, yep. right? Which tends not to be so many... Uh, speed changes and more of a, a, a steady, steady state, except for the start, of course. And that kind of uh, is true also in the start of mountain bike races. I oftentimes struggle and uh, end up having to catch the leaders after the start. And uh, same, same holds true for cyclocross, right? They, these races that start out at a full sprint, a lot of times I get distance at the beginning and then and then the chasing back on. So I guess my question for you is what we're describing here, this, this huge ability to uh, sustain a, a very high pace, but, but not as good ability to, to respond to the big attacks. Is that just something, in the, is that the way you feel you've always been, or is that something that you've noticed more and more with age? Yeah, I think I've, I've been this way a lot, but I noticed that I struggle more with the fast starts as I get older. And for instance, uh, like short track, short track racing as I get older, I'm terrible at it, right? Because I, ne- I there's no time to get back on, so I'll tend to get, you know, dropped off, dropped in the beginning of the race, and before I have time to recover and chase people down, the race is over. So. I've not been a big fan of short track, uh, especially as I'm older. It wasn't that bad when I was in my 40s. Well, this scares me because I'm in my 40s and it's horrible for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I should say I wasn't that bad. I was still bad, but (laughs) yeah. But I I would be suffering at the at the beginning of races, but I could still kind of maintain contact. Also, I could tell that I was suffering worse than the other riders, Mm. and then. after a certain amount of time, I became more comfortable and it seemed like they were suffering more. 
but as I've gotten older, I'll actually lose contact and then kind of have to chase back to the front if, if I can. Yeah, no, very interesting. Cause that's, that's been my experience too. I, I had a little more explosiveness in my early thirties. Now, um, the, the only way I can really compete with people is just say, let's turn this into a real long drag race. So same thing. If they start out really hard, I'm, I'm, I can get popped. I can be in trouble, uh, at the end of the race. I can't do anything in the sprint. But if everybody says, okay, let's go out and do four hours at 300 Watts. I'm, that's when I start salivating. Cause I'm like, yeah, I'm, I think I can pop a lot of people doing this. You know, I have a very similar profile to, to you. So it's, it's interesting. It's been my experience too, that that's something that I think I've always been that way, but it's become more exaggerated with the years. So I guess if I had to take this profile and summarize it, there are certainly things that you see here that, that are consistent with what the research is saying about aging. But if you, if somebody had handed this to me and covered up your name, covered up your age and told me this is somebody in their twenties, not only would I believe you, I would look at this and say, this is a talented athlete. Boy, I'd be excited to coach this guy. So the fact that it's actually somebody who's 53, it really does beg that question. Are you an outlier or is it just because of what you were saying, that you've had a lifestyle that's allowed you to keep up that level of training? And I don't know if we'll, we'll ever fully answer that question, but very interested in, in your opinion and, and what you think. Well, I, I will say that, uh, first of all, not knowing not having earlier tests so we we can't really compare whether that 71 vo2 max has stayed the same or actually gone down i would say that i think that i have a, a unique training and racing history for somebody who has gotten older and still sustained it over time and i think that the circumstances and there's a lot of circumstances involved, right? But being a professional athlete where I was paid to do that, transitioning to a different job where when I retired from mountain biking, I got into Xterra triathlon. And I think Xterra would probably help me maintain my VO2 max even more because it was also doing a variety of sports where, where I was running and swimming and those were focused on quality because, uh, Xterra tends to be a fairly short, you know, it's roughly two, two and a half hours. So there's a lot of intensity in training in three different sports. So I think as I transitioned into that, it probably helped me maintain my VO2 max even further into my age. Yeah, and we can keep going into all these different circumstances, which which have potentially helped me. Another one is that I live in, in Durango. It snows in the winter. I love Nordic skiing, cross-country skiing. So I've always done that while I've lived in Durango, and uh, it's been a great way to cross-train. It it helps me stay fresh when I'm going back to cycling in the springtime, because I would usually come into the spring pretty slow on the bike. I would be fit because, you know, I've gotten some, some good cross-training exercise with skiing and gym work and stuff in the winter. And one thing I've noticed over other athletes is that they would train a lot of cycling in the winter. And they would be quite fast in the spring. Some of them had their best performances in the spring, whereas I had some of my weakest performances in the spring. And then as the summer progressed, it was motivating to find out that I'm having better and better performances. So I was fresher, I think, at the end of the year when some of the most important races were happening, September. We call them March superstars. 
<laughs> they, they come out and crush everybody in March, but uh, start to fade pretty quickly. And that's got to be hard on your motivation, right? When you've you've had some of your best performances in March. Well, I, from what I've seen and, and from athletes that I've known, it's uh, they struggle with it because they don't get that when they show up March in March that strong, they think. I'm about to have the best season of my life because if I'm this strong in March, I'm going to get that much stronger. And then when they start to see the opposite, when they start to decline, uh, they get confused. So uh, I always kind of joke, but the, it's only partially joking that uh, it's unbelievable the number of cyclists who are diagnosed with mono in June. Because ultimately, when they can't explain it, they eventually go and see their doctors. They're completely burnt out and the symptoms of, of mono and, and burnout are, are virtually the same. Uh, and doctors not knowing about burnout tell them they have mono. So, and as you said, that's right when you want to be on top form because that's when nationals are. That's when the big races are. Yeah, I think throughout my career, I've been fortunate to uh, recognize the importance of recovery and not get too burned out. And it's helped that I've I've been a lower volume trainer. That certainly helps with uh, not getting burned out and overtrained. But I've also been pretty good at listening to my body and, and taking some time off during the season to, to get some forced breaks. It, it's one thing that, you know, I've kind of watched Todd Wells over the years train. He's had a long career. He would take forced breaks. I mean, literally in the middle of the season, a week off the bike. And there's very few serious bike racers who are capable of doing that. They may say they're going to take an easy week, but they don't take a week off the bike. And he's, He's uh, got some great discipline for those, those mid-season breaks. So, uh, I just did an interview with Larry Warbus, who said he makes he, he makes sure that at least once during the season he takes a week where he is on a beach, doesn't even look at a bike. Same sort of thing. So Dr. Andy Pruitt likes to, to quote you, and I, I did want to ask you about this since we're talking about recovery. He said he wants to ask you what was the difference between now and when you were in your 20s, and you said... I train exactly the same way I did in my twenties. It just takes me twice as long to do it. <laughs> so is that is that a fair quote? It's just you you take more recovery time now. Yeah, definitely take. I don't know if it's it's exactly twice as long, but for sure I take more recovery time. I I do a lot of my recovery rides on the mountain bike. I tend to do my harder rides where where I can focus on on the effort on road bike or gravel bike, you know, where the terrain is, is not so interrupted as a mountain bike, but I go out on the mountain bike and just kind of enjoy myself. And it's more about the experience. I don't get my heart rate up that much. So it's kind of active recovery and, uh, kind of having a good time and, and working on skills at the same time. So that, that's worked out for me pretty well. And I think back in the day, if I went on a mountain bike ride, I, I kind of kept pushing. I, I wasn't so cognizant of the fact that I needed to keep my heart rate down and, and make it more of a relaxed recovery ride. Well, we had Frank Overton, owner of Fast Cat Coaching, world tour rider Sepp Kuss in the studio. We got into a conversation about aging. Frank, having coached a lot of Masters athletes and being a Masters rider himself, had a lot of insight. Sepp, being in his 20s, just contributed a little snickering in the background. Believe it or not, I do more as a master's cyclist than I did when I was in my 20s and 30s. And 20s and 30s is just smash the bike, repeat. And I didn't pay attention to anything 
I mean, yeah, you eat, you eat and you sleep and, and all that, but you could do a bunch of dumb stuff. But now as a master cyclist, like I eat right, pay attention to my sleep. I do my strength and conditioning. Um, I do yoga. Um, I really, I use the space legs, the, the compression. Um, I'm really cognizant about getting off my feet. I'll change. You know, it's like a whole lifestyle and you, you have a much more, sounds super boring, but you have a much more limited lifestyle. <laughs> as a master cyclist than you can as a, you know, you know, a younger cyclist where you can get away with more, but you have to super pay pay attention to your nutrition. And that's like a huge thing. Like if you'd have told me when I was 30 years old racing that I would be gluten-free, dairy-free and, you know, eat seven times a day and and really pay attention to my carb intake, I'd have laughed, but that's what I do as a master cyclist. And those little things you have to grab a hold of the as many little things as you can the marginal gains um as a master cyclist because you're just not making as much power and you just can't recover as much you can't train as much and you just have to be less aggressive with your training so that you can you have to pay attention to balancing your training and racing you know don't do too much never when i was 30 did i ever say on the bike don't do too much because you you know, you won't be able to train the next day. But if I do too much on the bike, on like tomorrow, Saturday, I could mess up the next week because yeah. I find as a master cyclist, I'm really good for the one day when I'm recovered, but it's the next day and the next day that I'm garbage. <laughs> and so what you have to do is spread out the load over time as a master cyclist, whereas the younger cyclist, you can just jam it down your throat and recover and, and go again the next day. <laughs> And, and so I see a lot of, when I work with master cyclists, you know, especially the time crunched ones, it's never a problem Monday through Friday, but on Saturday, Sunday, when they don't work, they want to cram it down. But man, that has a stream of effects downstream and you can't recover from. So you, you have to spread that training load out. So it sounds like those masters athletes who say, you know, I've only got eight, nine hours a week to train. So I'm just going to smash it every time I go out on the bike and forget stretching, forget off the bike stuff it's just every minute's could be on the bike you, you would have a long conversation with them yes eight to ten hours a week as a master cyclist is not an excuse you can get really fast on that but you got to do all the stuff off the bike to recover um and to perform nutrition nutrition and recovery being the two biggest things but there's so much that goes into that you need to talk with them how much sleep do you get a night you know if you get six you're not gonna that's not gonna work but if there are, you know, talk to them about ways to get more sleep and naps and not doing yard work on Saturday afternoon after the, the group ride, things like that. Now that you've heard how a good coach would help his athletes, let's get Ned's thoughts on coaching. After all the success you've had, you've never had, you've never really had a coach. I'm curious if you've all, ever thought to yourself, would I be even better if I did? Um, I, I do think that, except I think one of the, one of the reasons for my longevity is that I've kind of trained the way I want to, and it's worked well for me. The problem with having a coach is that for sure it's going to add structure to my training and my unstructured style of training, I think is one of the things that has helped keep me enthusiastic about, about riding. Yeah, kind of, you, you develop a relationship with a coach and I'm always afraid that <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to let the coach down cause I'm going to, 
you know, I'm not going to follow his plan because I won't want that kind of structure, you know, and, and it will add extra stress to it, right? Because I'll be feeling the stress of this guy wants me to train this way today, and I don't want to train that way today. Yeah, there's something to be said about maintaining the, the fun of why you do this to begin with. The training is is a means to an end, which is performance and high performance, but it has to all be wrapped in this layer of fun or else it, it just – it, you you can't do it at the same level anymore. I'm also going to quickly interject here as the coach and say that a good coach realizes that the the workouts are are ten percent of it. Um, and if all you're doing is telling an athlete do this Tuesday, this Wednesday, this Thursday, I think you're you're missing out on a lot of it. And a big part of a, being a good coach is, is recognizing what makes each athlete tick and work with that. Uh, so a good coach working with you would realize giving him a bunch of wattage numbers and telling him what to do every day is actually going to be counterproductive and more work with you in the way that you like to, to train. All that being said, if you had come to me and said, coach me, and now that I've had this conversation with you and seen a lot of information about you, most of my response would be, you have really perfected it and, and you are doing exactly what they are saying you should be doing. So, you know, my answer is I'm not sure uh, you would see that much of an improvement with a coach. Yeah, I don't doubt a coach. And, and like you say, a good coach is going to just try and fine tune what you're doing right and and little changes what you're doing wrong when you have an athlete that, that's had some success. I, I think where a coach could help is, uh, especially in things like triathlon, right, where there's there's so much technique involved and it gets complicated as you're trying to juggle three different sports and which which sports you should be putting your energy into right especially when you're you're somebody like you who's as careful as you are about recovery <laughs> there's one topic that keeps reminding me and chris i know uh that you've written the haywire heart mm-hmm. and when you talk about athletes that are my age one thing that was was shocking to me to recently learn that uh, Dave Scott has developed AFib. Mm -hmm. And I consider Dave Scott to be possibly the fittest 62-year-old on the planet. (laughs) uh, (laughs) I think he would take that as a compliment, yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's an amazing guy because I know he still trains with huge volume and perhaps too much volume is what we may be finding out with him him coming down with AFib. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's uh, it's important to point out that another downside of too much volume combined with intensity as you get older can actually uh, damage your heart. Yes. I mean, that is a topic for an entirely different podcast episode, but you're right. Myself, along with Leonard Zinn and Dr. John Mandrola, wrote an entire book about uh, heart arrhythmias generally speaking, not just in, in older athletes, but particularly uh, in, 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 in older athletes, we're now seeing a lot more arrhythmias being diagnosed. Is there a absolute uh, known cause for those? No, but there are definite patterns and trends that we're seeing. There are good arguments to be made that as you've done, Paying attention to your body and, and recovery is extremely important 
as you get older, not only because of the the cumulative effects of all the workouts you've done in your life and how that may damage your heart, but also just on performance. We're talking about recovery as if it's a, you know, a task that you kind of have to deal with. But if you really want to get fast, you have to take and treat recovery as an equally important part of the equation of, of your training. But it does bring up that very interesting question of do you do we need to switch the balance of intensity and endurance? Because Chris, as I remember from your book, a lot of the people who are experiencing this were doing big, big volume. Yeah, uh, you know, the, the, I think that that's a generalization, a general trend. But for sure, the, the the majority of the people that we did case studies on were people like Dave Scott or Mike Endicott, some of these people who were were fitting in not only a lot of volume but doing it year round if it wasn't on the bike it was running if it wasn't running it was cross country skiing and it was this this constant thing for them so it was a volume and it had this cumulative effect from year to year not to mention the um i guess just the the general stress in their life compounded by the fact that they added stress by trying to squeeze in at every waking moment some other activity and in none of those activities involved putting their feet up on the couch and watching bad British TV shows. But Ned, I think that comes back to uh, your point of that, that huge importance of recovery. And, and certainly as we get older, we might have to shift that, uh, that balance a, a little more towards the, the recovery side. I mentioned my old mentor, Glenn Swan, who was a three-time national champion in his 40s and 50s. I had a chance to talk with Glenn about the secrets of staying young. We discussed recovery, training races versus intervals, coaching, skiing in the winter, and peaking later. What's remarkable is how similar these two Masters athletes from opposite ends of the country approach their training and racing. I am here in, in Glenn Swan's bike shop. It is, if you're wondering what all that noise is, it is 9.45 at night. Glenn is still working on customers' bikes, which is what he's done for probably the last 40 years, every single night, which begs the question, where did you find the time to train? I always think back to being what I thought was some hot 30, young 30-something-year-old. 30 I remember being in a race with you and Danny Timmerman and several other riders who were Cat 1 riders were there. And you were about 50 at the time. And we started the race and you broke away solo. And we sat there as a field trying to chase you, and you stayed away to the finish and won that race. And that was kind of a lesson in, damn, this guy is strong. And when you were younger, you could race really hard. You could brutalize yourself. And, you know, maybe you went easy on Monday. Yeah. And you were ready to do Tuesday night race. And then it got to where, okay, it took a couple of days to recover from injuries or overuse. And as a master's racer, you're trying to be ready for the next weekend, <laughs> or you're trying not to hurt yourself so bad that you add something on top of what you've already done. Your training becomes much more about either injury prevention or recovery. There was also the fact that I and several of my contemporaries, the good master's racers in the Northeast, you know, we were willing to hurt. We could ride harder and in more pain. We found pain and hard effort to be invigorating. Right. But this is an observation that I have 
uh, shared with a number of these older friends of mine that now that we're late 50s, early 60s, not one of us is invigorated by pain. Not one of us wants to ride really hard and finds it exciting to push ourselves to the limits. And when I look at the master's race results, the master's riders who are really kicking it and getting results are a lot of names that I didn't know back in my day. I think a lot of them are guys who are new to the sport and are still excited about getting better and improving. Whereas those of us who were struggling along, holding our position at the top, we kind of burned ourselves out. So what were some of your secrets of being able to, to ride in your 40s and your 50s and being able to basically compete with, with pros or guys who are close to pro level? I was lucky to be a bit of a mutant. <laughs> that helps. I had very high VO max and... Uh, now that I'm older and I'm feeling as though I don't have nearly as much strength, I realized that I had very good core strength. I it always seemed as though there was something more to reach down and, and get when I needed more power to climb over a hill or to, to sprint or whatever. It always seemed to be there. I skied in the wintertime. I, I did all kinds of sports, so I, I had pretty good overall fitness. Uh, so combine an abnormal VO2 with good overall fitness. I had very good position on the bike. I was very physiologically efficient. I worked on all of these sorts of things and uh, optimized my riding style for my physiology. So is there anything you did different in your training when you were in your 40s and 50s that you, from when you were in your 20s? I've always had at least one job. And usually I've had my full-time job at Cornell and running the bike shop at night. So I never had time to overtrain. And I'd say that was one of the fundamental advantages I had over many of the other racers. Uh, I would always laugh at the, the young guys who were on the program. They were on somebody's training program, whether they had a coach or whether they were doing something with information they got online, and they were always hammering themselves. They were always working way too hard, way too early in the year, and they'd be tired. And I'd know that by the time we reached the, the real money part of the season, July and August, that they'd be ready to play tennis, and I'd be coming into peak form, and I'd be able to kick their butts around. I had good results late in the season, <laughs> in part because... I was managing my training. I never had time to be overtrained, and because a lot of my competition was doing just the opposite. Right. And I, I don't know quite how a coach really can can get it across to his athletes, but it, I think one of the things that many coaches lack is inspiring the athlete to have fun while he is riding and training to see the fun aspects of riding and not see it as simply this is a structured workout because if riding a bike is work then you're missing out on a hell of a lot of fun and life is about fun and if you are having fun you will work harder and you will yeah. stay in it for a longer time the fact that i raced bicycles from good grief I was in my teens when I started, and I raced pretty much until I was 
about 60. That's a long time to be racing. But bike racing is a lot like chess. It can be different all the time. So it stays interesting for a long time. That's part of why it's better to race aggressively and to have a strategy and try to make things work. Because if your whole way of racing bicycles is sit in, wait for the sprint, it all starts to seem the same and boring. I was going to say, to, to circle back to the question of whether Ned is an outlier or not, from the outside, it certainly seems like he has to be. I mean, he's done things that few other people have been able to do. That being said, he's doing all the things you want to hear out of somebody that is aging. You know, he's he's very aware of of his body and what it needs. He's taking more time to recover. He's doing other things besides riding a bike. He's he's skiing in the in the winters. He's he's mixing it up. He's doing things in the weight room. All of these things can be applied to anybody of any skill level out there, which is what I think is is important to take out of this. Just because Ned is crushing people at the age of 60 and and riding at an amazing level still, that doesn't mean that you can't follow his lead and improve your performances or maintain them over the course of of decades. Right. And Ned, that's what I found fascinating. There's been some studies published in the last few years. They're the ones that are saying, wow, you know, this, this whole thing that we thought was aging isn't um, as much of a aging inevitability as we think. And then they go into, here's what you need to do to prevent what we thought were, were aging effects. And in our conversation here with you, you're doing all these things. And it just seems like you have, you have figured this out. Yeah. And, and I've read, you know, a, a long time ago, about these best methods for, you know, maintaining your VO2 capacity. And the older I get, the more I'm staying focused on them. You know, whether it's maintaining training, don't gain too much weight, varied training, um, high-intensity training. So so all of these kind of things. And, and another thing we haven't mentioned, which has been a big part of my success, is figuring out how to maintain the momentum in your training. And that's kind of on a, on a micro cycle for, you know, whether it's not overtraining, not injuring yourself, not getting sick to build up your fitness throughout a season. And then on a macro cycle, the momentum of your training year after year to maintain your fitness as you get older, you know, and, and that's again, not to get too far out of shape in the winter and uh, stay healthy by doing more balanced exercises, not getting sick. And, and it, it's kind of, you have to maintain enthusiasm for that training year round. And there's definitely some tricks to that. And again, things like uh, group rides and uh, mixing up the sports for me, even mixing up the different cycling sports, right? I'm, I'm fortunate. I work for a company and we make gravel bikes, road bikes, mountain bikes, you know, cross country and trail. We make fat bikes, a lot of different types of riding to get excited about. Any other suggestions that you would have for our listeners who like us are getting a little older and, and want to know what to do with their, their training to stay active and, and competitive? Well, one, one thing that I'd like to mention is uh, the importance of, of having the right attitude. Because I know with a, a lot of people, they assume 
as their performances decline that, okay, this is, this is a natural thing because I'm older, I'm going to get slower, you know, I'm going to get heavier. They just assume because that's what they've heard that their performances are going to decline. So I, I think it's really important to have an open attitude to the fact that you can slow the aging with smart training. And, and I think in my racing, sometimes I, I can get down because I am getting dropped by more guys that, than I used to get dropped by. But, but if I look to the positive side, if I look like on Strava, I am still setting some PRs and, uh, having some fast time. So it's, it's not necessarily that all because it's just age related decline. Some of us, I'm actually riding with some guys that are faster than they used to be. But there, there's a lot of positives out there, which I think are important to, uh, embrace and, and recognize that you can actually maintain a pretty high level of fitness. There is one more thing and, and we've, we've touched on a lot of things, but, uh, self preservation. One thing that really stops momentum in training is injuries and injuries from crashing. And I know that uh, I've always been pretty fortunate in not having a lot of bad crashes over the years. So so maybe it's a kind of a self-preservation thing of knowing when to pull back from from that envelope, you know, where you lose control and there's there's more possibility of crashing. But definitely as I get older and I hurt myself and I, I recognize how long it takes to come back and injuries sometimes live with you forever. So it can, it can really hurt your, uh, your long-term ability to maintain your fitness. So maybe swallowing your pride a little bit, not hmm. having so much machismo, mm-hmm. not chasing the wrong guys down the trail. That's important because staying healthy by not crashing can make a huge difference in maintaining your fitness. As I sit here wearing a back brace, I, I couldn't agree more. But you can imagine, I do a lot of group rides with people and, uh, it's competitive. Chris, I know, you know, if you do some of these product launches, every group is competitive, right? I mean, whether it's journalists or dealers or consumers or, you know, product managers, I I go on rides when I'm out at Specialized, they have a Friday mountain bike ride with the product managers. And I've learned the hard way that not to chase those guys down the hills, you know, not to right. try and prove that, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm mountain bike world champion, so I'm, I've got to go fast down these hills. You know, you got to swallow your pride a little bit and, and not worry so much if they have to wait a few seconds for you at the bottom. These guys all ride with goggles on the tops of their helmets. Mm. So, you, so you know how important it is when they get to the top of a hill, you know, they pull the goggles down and Jeez. they're focusing on, on getting down as fast as possible. That reminds me actually of something that Dave Scott once told me, coming back to the heart arrhythmia issue. You just said, Ned, that he, in your mind, is the fittest 62-year-old man in the world. I think he's been dealing with that label for his entire life, the fittest man in the world. And he feels a lot of responsibility to maintain that. And I think that's a blessing and a curse for him. I think because of that, he pushes himself and pushes himself. And over the years, I I, I don't want to I don't want to blame him. I don't want to say a hundred with a hundred percent confidence that's what happened to him. But he does push himself a lot. I, I also don't want to criticize him, but maybe he has not been able to set it aside like you have, and he's just pushed himself. Whereas you've said, you know what, I can't follow that 
25-year-old guy that's made out of rubber and will bounce off the ground. I'm not – I'm going to break if I do what he does. So, Yeah, yeah, common sense. I got my uh, philosophy, and I think one of the, the, the best bits of advice I ever got was from my grandfather who was a World War II pilot, and he did two tours and never lost a man, never failed to complete a mission. And I, I asked him what uh, – uh, how he was able to do that. And he said, simple, I was a chicken, which was not the answer I was expecting. And I asked him to uh, explain that. And he said, look, I did only what was absolutely necessary to accomplish the mission. I took no risks beyond that, because when you take risks, you're going to get shot down. And that uh, that had an impact on me. And it's kind of what I've taken into trying to get some longevity in this sport is only take the risk when it's absolutely necessary. Don't take them when, when you don't have to. Like on product launches where you should, <laughs> you should st- stick to the 80% rule at all times. Do not go above 80% on a descent on an ascent on anything. Yeah. Well, that was another fascinating discussion. I think we all learned a lot from a legend in the sport net over and thank you again for, for being on the show. Thanks, guys. Yeah. No, I feel like uh, you've given me a lot to think about as well. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, The Vela News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between Velonews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Ned Overend, Coach Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.